If you have your bulletins, look on the back. Um, just for a moment, yesterday when I got back from spending a week up in the mountains in a tent, uh, I was unloading my Jeep, and uh, this big patch of ice out in front of our house, apparently we have some kind of water system or something that melts it. I don't know how it works, but it's not turned on, obviously, because it's a big patch of ice. So, grab the stuff out of my tent. Whoosh. It's just like this guy right there on Daylight Savings Time. <laughs> Next week is Daylight Savings Time. Don't forget it. By the way, I didn't fall. I got pretty good balance. Slid all the way across. Second thing is uh, read the section on the Haiti team. We could use your help, okay? So take, take some time and read this. There's some things that you can do to help out the Haiti team, okay? All right. This morning, I would like to uh, pray for you. One of the things that happens when you're hiking around the woods and um, getting a lot of quiet time, you think about things. Your brain, mind kind of decompresses a little bit. And so uh, I just found myself thinking about our congregation. And, you know, I was thinking for a while about our singles. We have several singles here. And our singles are, uh, many of them, just wondering what God's plan for their life is. Some of them struggle with loneliness. And we should not forget them. Um, I was thinking about our marriages. We have several marriages that are struggling deeply. And um, I'm sure there's several that I don't know that are struggling deeply as well. You know, our high schoolers, um, some of them have now graduated, gone to college, and I've been on the phone with them. And and everybody in our church is just struggling at at least someplace a little bit, some people more than others. Life is a challenge, isn't it? It's not very easy. The best marriages, one of my heroes here in the church is a, one of the older guys who came up and said, I have a great marriage, but it's not good enough. Will you help us? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Every marriage, no matter how good it is, has challenges to it, doesn't it? So there's just a lot of things going on in our congregation, and I want to pray for you. I also want to take a moment and pray for our country as we enter into the season of election. Um, I know I personally feel like, do we have to see another commercial? But And that's gonna, just going to get worse. But the truth is, this is one of those moments where God intervenes. Paul tells us that uh, no authority is put in place except by God's permission. And so he, he's about to make a statement. And I think we should stop and just seek his wisdom and, on this. So let's pray together. Father, I would, like to, uh, <clears throat> I would like to lift up our singles, Lord, and just say thank you for them. I, uh, I love them as I've gotten to know them. The ones I do know, they're, they're faced with unique challenges, trying to figure out life if they're going to be with somebody sometimes they're struggling with loneliness lord our children our middle schoolers our high schoolers they have their own um, challenges and growth trying to make sense of it father i just looked around this morning and see all the young couples with the kids running around and the uh, young families and um, it's hard this time of life it's so hard to continue to uh, generate enough income to pay for everything and the challenges of of kids running around the house and I pray for them, Lord, that you would be merciful. Lord, I pray for our marriages. Lord, uh, I know that some of our marriages are hurting deeply, and I pray that you would show yourself strong to them and um, do what you do so well. You're so gracious. You're so life-giving. You're so healing. And I pray, Father, that you would continue to involve yourself in all of our marriages. Lord, I um, I pray for our widows and widowers. Uh, I pray that you would be merciful to them, Lord, as they... Uh, are now without their spouse. So I just pray that you'd watch over our entire congregation, Lord, and uh, help us to feel your presence in your ways. 
Lord, I lift up our country uh, as we approach another election. Soon we'll be selecting a president. And Lord, I, I love serving a God who cares and a God who um, involves himself, engages himself with us. So I, I pray, Lord, on behalf of our congregation that you would choose well for our country. Lead us in the way that you want us to go. Thank you, Lord. Uh, heal us from all this, the so many divisions that I see everywhere I turn. And um, raise up, I don't know how to do it, and I pray that you'd raise up the people that would know how to do it. Thank you for your, your goodness to us. In your son's name we pray, amen. Okay, so we're in a second Sunday of a series, Miraculous Beginnings. I love the rope and the knots, tying the knots, working our way to Jesus. Uh, this is preparing us for Advent. Yes, Advent is coming. It's right around the corner. And uh, each of these, these sermons in the series are designed to highlight somebody that God used specifically and miraculously to get us to Christ, to prepare us for Christ. Uh, last week, I think you looked at Isaac, and um, thank you, Stefan, for that. And um, it's fun to have a good, competent staff who don't mind jumping up here. Uh, anybody want to preach, let me know. So most of the time, people run the other direction. There's a few of us that love it. But thanks for praying. I mean, for preaching. And um, so this week, we're going to take a look at Moses. But these are all designed to, to highlight God's engagement all throughout history to move us forward as a redeemed people. He did not forget us. When we turned our back on him and walked away, he could have walked away too, but he chose not to. The rest of history, it's recorded a bunch of it right here, is him pursuing us aggressively, not letting us go. It's a wonderful story. Is there any better story in all of life? than to have a God, a one true living God who loves us and goes after us. And everything we look at in here is fits under that big umbrella that he is not letting us go. He's pursuing us. So today we're going to look at Moses because Moses is very unique. Okay, the difference between Genesis 50 and Exodus 1 is uh, about four to 500 years. Big gap. Okay, so let me remind you of the story to gets us to Moses. It's familiar to you. Many of you had it in Sunday school growing up. You have Abraham. God calls Abraham, who has a son, Isaac, who you looked at next week, who has a son, Jacob, who has 12 sons, one of which is Joseph. Joseph was a cocky young man, had a dream, and didn't mind telling everybody about it, that all of his brothers were going to bow down to him one day. I love that. And it uh, reminds me of my older brother, actually. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he may be listening to this. <laughs> And um, so they, to get even with him, later on, they sell him into slavery. And he goes to Egypt. I don't know what that would be like, to be completely cut off from my family, sold into slavery, and now a slave. While there, he proves himself faithful and, uh, in Potiphar's household. And so Potiphar's wife approaches him to uh, sleep with him. And he's a man of integrity and turns her down. So... He goes to jail for that. He goes to jail for his integrity. Familiar story, isn't it? I've heard it many times. While in jail, Pharaoh has a dream, and he gets to interpret it. He gets to interpret the dream about the seven years of famine, followed by the seven years, I mean, plenty, followed by the seven years of famine. Okay, pause. That right there is a story that, that every elder, in fact, every one of you should know. 
because we serve the sovereign God, don't we? Do we really believe that? I do. I also believe the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Psalm 19, Psalm 24, everything. So when we as a church, when we struggle with finances, that's a, that's a statement from the Lord. Money is always a statement from the Lord. If he has blessed you abundantly, that's a statement from the Lord because he didn't choose to bless all of us, right? I'm not one of those that he blessed abundantly, although I'm abundantly blessed. And so if he chooses to bless you abundantly with finances, you should be asking the question, why? What's the Lord saying? If he chooses not to bless you abundantly with finances, you should also be asking the question, why? What should the, you know, what's the Lord saying? And when our church is, is in the, when we are in the black, we praise God for that. What is the Lord doing with that? Why is he doing that? When we're not in the black, if we're in the red, that's okay. What is the Lord saying by that? And this story of Joseph is one of the many stories that help us capture what faith looks like in that particular setting. So he's, they saved for seven years, and he got elevated to a very high position, second in Egypt, actually, in the land that they went through that, that very severe famine. And so Joseph's brothers down in the land of Palestine, they came down, uh, came down to Egypt to seek food, and they run into Joseph. Again, familiar story, isn't it? And so it's a wonderfully traumatic story. From Joseph's perspective, the joy is overflowing. From the brother's perspective, it's trauma, it's terror. They never quite got past the idea that he might seek vengeance. They struggled with that for a long time because they betrayed him and he forgave them, uh, which is another lesson in life that we should pay close attention to. So Joseph gets to be united with his brothers and his father. He dies a hero. The number two man in Egypt. Uh, Egypt is the uh, superpower of the world. They're the war country that's taking care of all the surrounding countries because of the famine. He dies a hero. And then we move to Exodus. <coughs> and we're slaves. We're no longer heroes. They're now slaves. We're talking four to five hundred years later. Okay, look how Exodus opens. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph, Jacob, or Joseph was already in Egypt. What a, what a wild place to start. Why does he start here? We often just read right past this and get to the story of the Exodus, don't we? The burning bush. You want to get to the burning bush. It's coming. Exodus 3. Right here we find a very large statement of the grace of God. The family is still together. They're still together 500 years later. Okay? Now, just to kind of give you a perspective, some thoughts on what that might look like or what the problems are, if you were to, you were God, let's say you get to be God for the day, and you decide to start a country, you want a nation that's going to, you're going to pick to reach the rest of them, how would you do it? How would you pick this country? How would you get them to grow? How would you go from one man and one woman to a nation that will tell the world about your glory? How would you do that? Well, what God did is both mystifying, we scratch our heads, and beautiful at the same time. He puts them right smack in the middle of the one nation that won't intermarry with them because they loathe the Israelites. 
We know that from Genesis 47. We're about to find out from the new Pharaoh. They don't like the Israelites. They're hairy people. They're dirty people. They handle animals. And the Egyptians are clean-shaven, top to bottom. And so they, didn't, they gave them their own land. You guys go over there to Goshen. We appreciate Joseph because he took care of us. But uh, we'll give you land. Thanks. And we'll bless you. You get your own little land over here in Goshen. But we're not going to intermarry with you. So, so the Israelites were protected. They're right smack in the middle of the only superpower of the ancient world. They protected them. They fed them. They took care of them. And they kept them isolated. They kept their ethnic identity intact. Exodus starts four to five hundred years later to remind us of God's grace. The people, the family is still together. Do you see it? And it's a statement of how wonderful God is to choose a method I never even would have thought of to bury them right smack in the middle of the only superpower. So this is a mark of God's love. But rather than heroes, they're now slaves. Verse six. Now Joseph and all his brothers in that generation, they all died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They increased in numbers. They became so numerous that the land was filled with them. You get this picture of Israelites running everywhere. Then a king came to whom Joseph meant nothing. He didn't know who he was. Well, we're talking four or five hundred years later. He came to power. And he said to his people, Look, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, well, it's going to be a problem. Because they're slaves. And what happens when the slaves outnumber the masters? They might have a problem. So, they put masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. The more they kept growing and spreading. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar. With all kinds of work in the fields and with all their harsh labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. They're no longer heroes. They're now slaves. What a turn of events in 500 years. All right, so Pharaoh decides to initiate a state program to kill all the boys. Okay, verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shiphrah and Puah, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives, I love this. I just love this statement. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. What does Pharaoh know? <laughs> you know, just because you're the head of state doesn't mean you're the smartest guy in the kingdom. <laughs> what does he know about giving birth to kids? And they just duped him. It's just, it's one of the funny little verses in the Bible. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, they gave him fam he gave them families of their own. Families of their own. So the, uh, these, two, um, these two midwives probably oversaw a, long, a lot of women who were midwiving Egyptian women, okay? 
And somehow they had managed to protect many of the Hebrew boys. So the state program is not working out. So the first heroes in Exodus are a combination of Hebrew and Egyptian midwives. Okay? So Pharaoh gets it. He realizes he's been duped. So what does he do? He issues an order. Verse 22, gave this order to all the people, everyone. I'm not going to trust the midwives, everyone. Every Hebrew boy that is born to you must be thrown into the Nile. Can you even imagine? Shows you how degraded their view of life was. By the way, it's a joy, it's a blessing that we experience in our culture, and I would say it's thanks to our Christian roots that we value human life. Can you imagine throwing your baby boy to the the River Nile? But every girl gets to live, so sometimes it's good to be a girl. Not always in the Bible, but in this particular case, it is. All right, so that's kind of the background to the whole story of Moses coming. Now I'm going to read to you the story of Moses in this context, and, and I want you to see what happens. This is spectacular. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman. By the way, there's no names in the story except Moses. He's the only one named. That's the author telling us something. Pay attention to this person. This person is important. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When he saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. <clears throat> but he's a boy. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. By the way, papyrus basket is the same Hebrew word for the word ark. We translate ark in the story of Noah. Uh, these, are, these are patterns that get us to Christ. Okay, So here we have an ark, uh, just a little one uh, built. She placed the child in it, put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Her si- his sister stood at a distance, that's Moses' sister, to see what would happen to him. Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for this baby. She said, this is one of the Hebrew babies. It's a boy. Now, what's she supposed to do? Well, throw it in the river. This is Pharaoh's daughter. His sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, So Moses' sister asked Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter, the woman, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered, and the girl went and got the baby's mother. So she went and gets Moses' mother to nurse him and takes care of him. I love that. Ironies in the Bible. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Okay, that's... uh, that's the basic story. Now think through some of the statements that are made in here. Number one, Moses is the only one mentioned. So he's the highlight of the story. God's really elevating them, him for a reason. Number two, the Pharaoh's daughter comes down and she washes at the river. You have to understand, she didn't need to take a bath. She's an Egyptian princess. She had plenty of elaborate bathing facilities, especially with all of her entourage. She was going down as part of a religious ritual to worship the river god, Nile. And so she was supposed to be an incarnate God, all the members of uh, Pharaoh's family served some purpose in incarnating the gods to the world. Pharaoh was one of those. Um, Caesar was later on in Roman history. That's very common among the nations. 
And so she's down there doing her duty as an incarnate goddess, worshiping the river god Nile, and comes across this little baby stuck in a, a, little, a little ark here. Moses' mother placed Moses where he would be found. She's not trying to hide him. All right? That's a critical part of the story because that shows us what faith looks like. Okay? He was, he was born and bred and came to life through the very strong faith of a family. They placed him specifically where he would be found. It's incredible. So she looks in the basket and says, wow, that's a Hebrew boy. How did she know that was a Hebrew child? Must have a sign. Hebrew boy. Hebrew boy. <laughs> no, he's circumcised. <laughs> Egyptians weren't circumcised. Got it right away. I don't know what prompted her not to throw him in the river, but she didn't. She didn't. And the moment she says, take, uh, take this baby and nurse him and I will pay you, uh, he became protected under the state under her, her family because she's now paying state monies to have him taken care of. So all of a sudden, this little boy gets miraculously protected. Well, then we've got this really fun thing happening in the last verse about his name. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter. He became her son. So she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Moses is a, is a fairly unique name in the ancient world in one regard in that it overlaps with Hebrew and, and Egyptian language both. They both have that name in there, okay? So she names him an Egyptian name, which God, tongue-in-cheek, uses in a Hebrew context. Because in the Egyptian language, the word Moses is uh, it's a name given to, um, uh, to people of royal birth. And there's always a deity's name attached to it. In fact, the pharaohs down through this period were called Tutmosis I, Tutmosis II, the third, and the fourth. So they took the name Moses, which means something like this is a significant one, and they attach it to the name of their God. The Hebrews did the same, Jeremiah, Yahweh, Ezekiel, El, okay? Short name, Elohim, God. So the, they did the same, Daniel, El, for the name of God. So they would take the name of God and they would attach something else to it. And that had significance. Same in Hebrew, I mean in Egyptian culture. So Moses was a name that was always attached to a deity. So Moses is unique because his name doesn't have a deity attached. She never did that. At least we don't have a record of it. So it comes across as this is a significant one that is born. Now, the Hebrew equivalent of that name means it's to draw out. He is one who draws out or draws out of water. Okay? That becomes theologically significant because he's going to draw his people out of the slavery in Egypt and give them freedom. So then the third part of it is she said, I'm going to name him Moses. Uh, I drew him out of the water. So apparently she got the tongue. She got the, the, the joke, the tongue in cheek. She created it, Pharaoh's daughter. I'm going to name him Moses because I drew him out of the water, not realizing that he's going to be the one to draw the people of God out of slavery. Okay, that, did that three minutes make sense? Okay, good. So you've got this play on words, this triple play on words that... that God uses Pharaoh's daughter to make that happen. And we have no record in history that she was a believer at all, and yet she did. Great story. Okay, what happens from here? Let's take, take just a moment to talk about the life of Moses. Becomes this, this becomes significant. In Acts, in Stephen's uh, sermon, before he's 
before he stoned to death. This is what he says in Acts 7. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his parents' home. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. He's raised in Pharaoh's home, in the court, the royal court. All right, now you've got to remember, all of these Israelites are slaves. They don't know anything about what I'm gonna, about to tell you, what he learned. Okay? So he's in Pharaoh's court, and he's raised in the royal court. That means he would have expected to master these subjects. The sciences, history, culture, law. Think about who God gave the law code to. Moses. Military strategy. <laughs> Literature, art, music, engineering, management, leadership. These are all things that Pharaoh's sons would have mastered because they would be leaders in the, uh, in the nation. So God took this young Hebrew boy and put him in Pharaoh's home to teach him all of these things. Later on, when the nation comes out, they're a ragtag bunch of slaves. They know nothing about any of this, and they have a leader who's an expert. See, see God at work here? It's right smack in the middle of the story, everywhere you look. Moses was part of God's plan. He was a person of destiny. Paul later on claims that he was a person of destiny. By the way, each of you are a person of destiny. What has God called you for? What has he saved you for? What is he asking you to do that might be a little uncomfortable? All right, think about that. Well, he was 40 when he decided to intervene. The very next verse in Acts, when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his people. You know the story. He comes across an Egyptian beating a slave on an Israelite, so he kills the Egyptian. The next day he goes back, and there's two Hebrews fighting each other, and he decides to, um, to stop that. And they said, are you going to kill us like you did the Egyptian yesterday? Well, he's terrified, so he runs. But listen to the language that Stephen uses. Um, the next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile. Oh, no, no, let me back up. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. So Moses thought for sure that he had a destiny that was going to be to lead the people, Israel, out of the nation. He already knew that. He's 40 years old. And so he gets it, and he intervenes in uh, God's plan and the way he thinks it needs to happen. And, and it doesn't work out the way he wants, and they kick him out of Egypt. He gets exiled, he runs away. So now he's gone. So he already has this sense of destiny. All right, so now let's go back to Exodus. I'm going to read one more verse in Stephen's sermon. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. So how old is Moses now? I'll give you a hint. He started at zero. He was 40 when he tried to intervene. 40 years later, the burning bush. How old is that? 80. Good. You all passed math. All right. 80 years old. 80 years of living life and God preparing him, 40 of which he knew he was destined to lead the nation, but had no opportunity to do it. We're not going to go through those desert wandering years, but God did a lot to prepare him in that journey too. It's something, it tells us something. The life of Moses reveals something to us about life. We have a culture today that, um, that really focuses on youth. I, I praise God for that. 
in the, in the biblical world, the uh, children were the lowest. They were even below the slaves in the social structure of value. I'm glad for that. The problem is that we've swung the pendulum the other way. And so our uh, older people are not nearly as valued. I had a conversation with a man who's in his 80s, who I trust, uh, another church. He lives back in New England. And um, I asked him what it's like being, being 80 in your church. And he said, it, it's hard. It's really hard. And I said, why is that? And he says, well, we have a young pastor. You know the trend in churches is to hire young pastors. And he said, um, my pastor doesn't talk my language. He's not answering any of the questions I'm asking. He asking. He's not dealing with any of the stresses I'm struggling with. And he said, I go to church because I've done my whole life. It just hit me like a ton of bricks. And uh, I'll be the first to confess to you that I don't do the best job at connecting with every generation. I work at it. I've had middle schoolers and high schoolers critique me, my sermons from time to time, and tell me what I'm missing. And they give me great feedback. Thought never crossed my mind to sit with Ken Wiggins. I said, Ken, what, what am I missing in your life? How important it is to bring the word of God to every generation because every generation is struggling. And here we see a theological principle at work. Young people is worth paying attention to. The most important people on the planet are your elders. If you want to learn what it means to live life, if you want to learn what it means to see the faith of God at work, go talk to the people that have been around the block 40 times. You won't be disappointed. You want to learn how to take your marriage, which you're excited about as a young person? When you're young, you're willing to fight for the issues. As you get older, you soon lose that drive. And if you don't take care of the problems, the problems become bigger and you pretty soon lose your fight. That's when you end up with separation and divorce. So you young people, you want to know how to make your marriages good while you're still willing to fight? Go have coffee with an 80-year-old and say, tell me about your marriage and listen to him. You see what happens in the early part of life, in the early part of the Christian journey, is young people want God to work through them, but he works mostly in them. As you move through life, the opposite happens. You're not so care. You don't care quite so much about God working through you because you're aging and breaking down. But God works more through you now than in you. Told our elders that as long as we are able, I always want at least one man on our elder board who's 70 or older. As long as we can. We have three coming to our elder retreat that are over 70. Do they introduce tension into the conversation? Absolutely, because some of these things we're trying to work out are generational. Praise God, I love the tension. I live for it. Because out of the tension comes the best decisions for the church. We need young people, we need middle-aged people, we need older people, and we need old people. I'm not going to define what that is. Okay, so Moses is now 80, and he's prepared to lead his people out. So God tells his people at the burning bush that he has heard his people. And then in Exodus 6, he repeats his concern. I have heard my people's groaning. That's what Moses brings to the table. Moses is an example of God intervening because he listened and he heard. God always initiates. God is not in a reactive mode. He's always in an initiate initiatory mode. He's always the one initiating. Even when it looks like he's reacting, right here, he's the one that led them there 400 years and then he just quietly stood back and said, when they get to the point where they know they need me, I'll re-engage. In fact, one of the reasons, the big, the big philosophical question, why does evil exist? 
One of the reasons is because, not every time, but one of the reasons is because God is getting your attention. The best way to get your attention is to smack you if you're running the other way. And sometimes that hurts. And so some of you are running. Some of you are, have, have lost your love, your first love, your passion. You've forgotten the word. And a, a smack is in your life. That's the way the Lord gets your attention. Okay? It's pain. It's called pain. And so he intervenes again right now with Moses. So what do we learn about God? We have a God who cares about us. We have a God who listens. We have a God who acts in our best interests. I'm going to read one more section and then we're done. Chapter 6. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will flee you from being free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. All these verbs are repeated of Christ. You see, Moses is the front runner, one of the front runners of Jesus. Just as Moses led this people out of slavery to Egypt, Jesus leads us out of slavery to sin. So the Exodus forms the backbone, the theological backbone for the New Testament. Because we all are participating in a massive Exodus out of a broken, old, tired world into a new creation that brings us freedom. That's where we are. Okay, so what do you learn about God from this? I just have a couple of thoughts to conclude. Number one, God's pattern is to listen to the cries of his people when he's testing their faith. And I know at least half of you are having your faith tested right now. Half of you are enjoying a period of rest. Praise God, enjoy it. But some of, many of you are, in, are having your faith tested. So what, uh, what are you doing right now? How are you relating to God? Are you doubting God at this point? Is that where you are? I love the question, why me? I think that's a great question. Every Christian should ask that when things go. If you can answer the question of why did God do this to me, then you know what he's doing. If you're clamoring after God and you're searching and you're saying, why is this happening to me? That's an evidence of faith. Because if you didn't care, you'd walk away. Or how about leadership? God's pattern is also to prepare people for the ministry that he will lead them into. So what is God preparing you for right now? You look at the events of your life. What's happening? Maybe it's bankruptcy. Maybe it's fantastic marriage. Maybe you're wealthy. Maybe you're poor. Maybe it's divorce. Maybe your marriage is succeeding. Maybe it's not. What's he preparing you for? You got to answer that question. Because every one of you is destined to do something for the Lord. I don't know what that is. Come have coffee with me and I'll be sure to tell you because I know your plan for your life. I could fit you well into my plan. What's God doing? What's he preparing you for? Father, thank you for your, for your grace. Thank you for sending us someone like Moses who can portray so clearly your love for us, your, uh, 
your listening to us, your movement into our lives, your willingness to step in when life is so challenging and so difficult. Lord, for giving us uh, a man who shows, his mother showed what great faith was, my goodness, and then he did as well. A man who gives us a legitimate, genuine hope that you have not forgotten us. You have remembered your promise and you have come back for us. You have heard our cries and our groanings. You have not ignored us. So Lord, I just pray that you would bless us as a congregation and help us to take this fantastic news to the people around us. In your son's name we pray, amen.